your children's bulletin. You have your own translation in there and a place to ask questions. We can take care of that for you. And everyone else, we're going to be continuing our study this morning through the book of Ecclesiastes. We're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. It's printed for you in toto in the ESV in your bulletin. And before we go to God's Word, let's go to Him in prayer. Oh, Lord God, we rejoice, Lord, that our name from the palms of Christ's hands, even eternity itself, will not erase that we are there secured by Him alone, that even the angels themselves, they may be more happy, but they're not more secure than we are in Christ. We thank You for that. And so, Lord, as we come before Your Word this morning, we ask that You would show us more of Christ. May we be made wise for salvation to see the Lord Jesus Christ. Send Your Holy Spirit. Open this text up to us that it may be profitable for us that we may be competent and equipped for every good work. We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. I love that song we just sang. That's one of my favorite hymns. And yes, just because there's a guitar, it is a hymn. The words are older than any of us in this room, so it qualifies as a hymn, I believe. But I, I love music. I love the way music speaks to us. And I love the way that younger generations, their music always has this way of really just speaking truth. I'm going to take a brief history tour here real quick. Some of you will resonate with some of this. Some of you will have no idea what I'm talking about. But remember that song, think about Creedence Clearwater Revival. That's going back, isn't it? That song, Fortunate Son, right? Love that song, but pointing out how often those with wealth and power often give lip service to patriotism and stuff, but really they're just greedy and selfish. Or how about a little later generation, you too, still haven't found what I'm looking for. Right? They admit to trying everything culture says, and it doesn't satisfy. Or even a little later, getting closer for some of you, the Goo Goo Dolls and their song, Name, about the pain and the regret in life, how culture offers no answers, but it tries to put us to sleep through entertainment. Pretty profound for a pop song. Or even a little bit later, getting closer to us today, Three Doors Down, If I Could Be Like That. It, this, this intense ache that a normal person has seeing a Hollywood lifestyle and just wanting even for one day to live that carefree, awesome lifestyle that is, seems just so fantastic. Or right now, today, currently, how about Echo Smith? Be like the cool kids. We can all relate to that one, can't we? This seems like for some reason you walk in and like it's just ordained upon high. You're cool and you're not, and I was always not. And it just seems like everything goes their way, right? You see, those are songs. I've just mentioned a song from every decade for the last 40 years. And they're all about what? Not being satisfied with the world around us. Wanting something more, something different, something better. Because life is unsatisfying. Life is frustrating. And Ecclesiastes gives us permission to admit that. It asks the questions the rest of the Bible answers. So where are we in Ecclesiastes? Here in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, which means obviously we finished chapter 1. And what he did is he intellectually considered education and moralism, religious behavior. 
trying to find the answer to the question from chapter 1, verse 3. What's the ultimate point of everything? What's the profit to be had from living this life under the sun? And he doesn't find the answers in education. <clears throat> Excuse me. He doesn't find the answers in moralism and religious performance. So today he's going to take a less intellectual view, we'll say. He's going to look at pleasure itself. In today's passage, he seeks to find the answer to what's the point? What's to be gained in all this? He's going to look at pleasure, he's going to look at possessions, and he's going to look at accomplishments. And he's going to tell us that he still ends up empty. It doesn't work. Now, the author of this book calls himself the, the, the pastor philosopher. Some translations have it the preacher. Traditionally, and it seems from the context, this is King Solomon. He's writing as an older man looking back over his life about the frustrations of life in this world. How if we are estranged from God, if, if we do not know His gracious answer to what's the point is in the person of Jesus Christ, we will never be satisfied. So Solomon writes as one who has tried all the answers. He lived this stuff. If you can imagine it, he tried it. And this passage helps us then look at some of the things we turn to as well for happiness. So if you would, would you look at me, Ecclesiastes chapter 2, <clears throat> verses 1 through 11. This is God's Word. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man." So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. This is God's Word. Alright, so I want to give you a theme for today. Let you know where we're going. What we're aiming at today. Boys and girls, you have a space. You might want to write this down if you could. Moms and dads, I, we encourage you to take your bulletins home and use them through for private and family devotions throughout the week. It's a good thing to remember how the sermon goes. I want to give it to you in one sentence. Here we go. <clears throat> we assume the Hollywood lifestyle would make us happy, but it is empty toil.
That's what he's talking about today. With all his wisdom, with all his resources, Solomon, we're going to see, conducts a happy experiment with unhappy results, which causes him to turn and face real happiness and try to figure it out. So let's go through this together. Let's look at this happy experiment. Solomon decides, he says, he's going to test his heart. Now I need to stop right there because we're modern Westerners. Okay, the word heart, when it's used in the Bible, is not what you're thinking. This is not the seat of the emotions. The way Scripture uses the word heart, this is the control center. This is the place that tells your emotions how to feel, tells your mind what to think, and tells your body what to do. Okay, it's all of those together. So he's like, I'm going to take the control facility of my life. I'm going to test it. I want to know what's going to happen. Now, if you remember how last chapter ended, he's empty. He's sad from trying to find the answers in education and religious behavior. And so now he's going to go in the complete opposite direction. He wants to know, is there something in this world that can satisfy my heart? This is the question of all people, by the way. If you are not rooted in the love of Jesus Christ, if you're not trusting in His work, His performance for your standing before God to root you and secure you, then you're asking the same thing. Is there something that can make me happy? And He tells us He's going to seek it out through pleasure. This is a genuine, deep kind of thing. Don't just think pleasure. Oh, he's just looking to have some fun. No, this is a, a deep, deep desire. This is the kind of pleasure you've seen in your own life. Maybe you've done in your own life. I want you to think of two long-time friends. Haven't seen each other for many, many years. And they're back together. They see each other. They don't say a word. They just stare at each other. And all of a sudden, a little curl starts to happen in one of their faces. The other one just busts out laughing, and they just embrace and just laugh together. The joy of being back together. That's the word he's using here. He's looking for some deep-seated, fulfilling pleasure or happiness in his life. He wants that, and we all want that, don't we? And Solomon tells us first thing right off the bat. I love how he does this to make sure we don't miss it. He tells us the very beginning of the story, this plan does not work. His quest to find happiness under the sun in this cursed world, it doesn't work. It's a failure because there is no happiness under the sun. C.S. Lewis said the same thing about 70 years ago about how we look for happiness. Here's, what, here's how C.S. Lewis framed it. He said this, he said, most people, if they had really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promises. Just this week, where have we gone? What have we done to try to satisfy this ache C.S. Lewis is talking about, this longing for pleasure and joy. Well, Solomon tells us that he is going to use all his resources. He is going to devote his life, his energy, to find as much pleasure as he possibly can. So we're going to walk through this experiment with, with him, so it's time to queue up cool in the game, all right? So it's, let's celebrate some good times. Let's go. Here we go. Ready? 
As we walk through this happy experiment now, I, I want you to see this in your life. So I, I'm gonna, if you'll allow me, I'm going to take this out of the terms Solomon uses, and I'm going to put it into the culture of those of us in this room. And here's what we're going to do. Solomon looks for happiness in the man cave. Solomon looks for happiness in the dream home. And Solomon looks for happiness in a fantasy life. Let's jump to this real quick. So the man cave, first of all. What's a man cave? Right? It's that place that a guy can go. It's his own space. He can do his own projects. But only, the only people who are there who are shorter than him are there by permission only. No one comes in and says, this place is so messy, clean it up. He can watch the game without interruptions. He can have a beer, have some friends over. They can be loud. They can just have fun and laugh. It's basically a place to have a temporary escape from the cares and concerns and responsibilities of life, right? Just to have some guy time and try to be happy. Solomon tries that. That's what he says. He says he's going to try being happy and laughing, having mirth, and just enjoying himself. And he says it doesn't work. It doesn't bring him pleasure. I ran across this paraphrase of this verse. I thought it was really good from a, a scholar named T.M. Moore. Here's how he paraphrased verse 2. He said this. He said, I concluded that laughter and merriment for their own sakes were madness. What did they accomplish to help me find lasting meaning and purpose in life? Think about the last time you were involved in a sports activity as a spectator and just the elation of joy when they, your team scored. Okay, now what? you still got more month than money, right? you still got that problem in your life. You, you're immediately right back down. That's what he's saying. And then verse 3 is clear that alcohol was involved. And I've got to go here because we're in the South. You know, we talked about moralism last week. You know, the idea that religious behavior, performing a certain way for God, is the basis of our salvation instead of the grace of God in Christ. And, and moralism, traditional moralism, wants me to come down real hard on alcohol right now and basically say, look, you are either a good Christian teetotaler or you're a drunk. There's no middle ground. Solomon is very clear here, as the rest of Scripture is. Drunkenness, of course, is a sin like gluttony and other things. Scriptures won't give me permission to bind your conscience about consuming alcohol. It just says don't get drunk. And Solomon's very clear here. He is not talking about drunkenness. That's why he throws in that little phrase in verse 3. My heart's still guiding me with wisdom. He's saying, look, I wasn't drunk. I was in control. I was saying, will alcohol make me happy if I don't drink it to excess? Does it work? Is it the social lubrication? Everybody says it is. Will I be happy and have levity and my cares go away and find pleasure? See, he's doing an experiment, remember. He's saying, I'm maintaining control. I want to objectively look at this. Am I better? Or do I just feel better but nothing's changed? Have I found pleasure to anchor my life? Here's how he put it for the boys and girls. Boys and girls, look with me at your verse 3. <clears throat> Here's how he said it for you. Solomon says... Then I explored happiness through beer and wine. Not too much, but just to see if I could grab onto some silliness to be happy in this boring life. See, boys and girls, Solomon's bored. Have you ever noticed, boys and girls, how you're so good at coming up with new things to do when you're bored? Inventing a new game or some new trouble, right? You want to be happy and entertain yourself when you're bored. That's what Solomon's doing. He's like, okay, I'm bored. Life is tedious. I'll, let's see if a drink makes me happy. See, that's where King Solomon is. He doesn't want to be sad anymore. 
He's trying everything, but he's watching to see if it works. You see, it all comes down to this. The man cave is about the word that we don't use very often, revelry. That light-hearted enjoyment away from the cares of life. Nothing's wrong with it, if that's all it is. But what he's seeing here is revelry can be a drug to mask my unsatisfied longings. It dulls my senses, but it doesn't give me rest from the deep longings of my heart. It doesn't work. Dear flock, this is why entertainment and hobbies have such a pull on our hearts. Why we are so willing to spend time and money to get to the race, to go fishing, to go see the Gamecocks. Because often we're looking for more than just entertainment, aren't we? We're looking for an escape from reality. Something to satisfy the ache in our soul for happiness, for pleasure that lasts. And we still haven't found what we're looking for. Because that ache, that pleasure can't be satisfied in this world. So the man cave doesn't work. So he moves on, he grows up a little bit, and he decides to try the dream home. Look with me at verses 4 through 6. He said, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. Note that word myself repeated in this section. There's no doubt what his motivation is. He is doing this for Solomon. You know, the Old Testament tells us Solomon was the builder of the temple, right? Beautiful, ornate, one of the wonders of the ancient world. It took seven years. And then it goes on to tell us he started working on his palace. And the Old Testament tells us it took 14 years for him to build his palace. See, Solomon's bragging on his accomplishments here. He had the best house on the block. And he was that guy. He had the best yard. Me, on the other hand, I hate yard work. I got to tell you, I think lawns are dumb. I think they're unnatural. By definition, they are unnatural. We're trying to enforce this foreign species uniformity when the natural thing, we call them weeds, but it's just the natural stuff wants to grow and we stop that. Anyway, I think it's dumb. And I have these live oaks in my front yard, these two huge live oaks. And I have to tell you, thank God they're live oaks because they, they just vomit out at least a three-inch deep layer of leaves all over my yard about every February and March. And Joseph and I hate them with a burning passion. And if they're a regular oaks, I can't even imagine, we would be buried in leaves. Anyway, I live between two church members, most of you know that. Um, and they keep their yards way better than I do. In fact, one of them just gets so frustrated, he just started mowing my lawn. So, I know, right? The, one of them, the other one, about every day, takes the time to fire up his blower and blows every one of my leaves off of his driveway. So, which is great. I appreciate that. It helps it, makes it easier for me to get them. And he's got this beautiful carpet yard and shrubs and everything. It's beautiful. He's like, you know, I live between those two guys, and I'm like, yes, I know. Okay. So, anyway. But most of you have that guy in your neighborhood, don't you, with the immaculate yard, right? That was Solomon. 
And he did it to see if this makes him happy. See, this is not just about showing off. This is a very deep desire. The way he wrote this, he want a, a, a people familiar with the Old Testament would immediately pick up on, these are very similar terms to what Adam was supposed to do in the Garden of Eden, of watering and caring and planting gardens and fruit trees. Basically, pretty much what Adam was supposed to do with Eden, Solomon said, I did in my backyard, in a desert, lots of resources and time and told to make that happen he worked hard he accomplished something great see the text is giving us a hint here this is an experiment about the heart what is solomon's heart trying to do he has given himself to make a substitute eden an artificial paradise because this world does not satisfy him a place he can find happiness and rest He went all out to find a place that he fits where he can be happy, where there can be peace to fill his heart, a counterfeit Eden. Isn't that exactly what we do? I mean, forget about yard work. Think about the Eden narrative and what these verses are really trying to say to us. What what was Eden like? It was complete acceptance with God, wasn't it? It was complete joy. It was complete freedom. It was peace. It was wholeness. And all of that is lost. And our hearts ache and they yearn for that back. Something deep in our heart because of the image of God in which we're made, it remembers and it wants it back. This is why you and I are so driven to accomplish something in our life. This is why you and I Even if we're not, if someone says, hey, are you busy tomorrow? What do we say? Yeah. Why? Because you're not a a valuable person if you have too much time on your hands. Get a job. Quit being lazy. Because we have to do and accomplish and be and earn our place in this world. And so we exhaust ourselves trying to find that sense of happiness through achievement, and it doesn't work. We may build great gardens and give ourselves an artificial Eden where we fit and we feel great, but it doesn't satisfy our hearts. We still haven't found what we're looking for. So the man cave doesn't work. <clears throat> the dream house, dream yard doesn't work. And so next in verses 7 through 9, he's going to check out the fantasy life. He's going to talk about his possessions and his um, activities, we'll call it. He tells us he has all these slaves... Not just hired servants. He's not saying, look at everybody takes care of stuff for me. No, these are property. And they're having babies, born slaves. That's a great return on his investment. He's bragging about his portfolio performance here. He is doing better in the market than anyone who's come before him. Not just that, verse 8, he tells us he has got great cash flow. Man, foreign taxes and tribute are just pouring in. I mean, with this description of his man cave and this description of the dream home, this description of his cash flow, I keep expecting Robin Leach to pop out and be like, this is an amazing home here on Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. For those of you under 40, MTV Cribs, okay? It's, this, it's the same thing. This is amazing life. And it's a fantasy for so many of us, isn't it? Deep down. Deep down, we all hear, money won't make you happy. But yeah, it'd be nice to find out, Right? And he goes on with his description of this lavish lifestyle. Man, if he liked the song, he didn't just get on iTunes and download it. He bought the band and, bought, and said, come here. 
And then he says he has so many concubines. And it means what you think it does. This again is a life that many people fantasize about. All the money, possessions, and sex he could ever want. But he reminds us it's an experiment. At the end of verse 8, he throws in that phrase, the children of man. It's literally the sons of Adam. He's using his resources to take to the extreme the fantasy life that all fallen, broken people think will make them happy. Happiness through wealth or the titillation of fake love. Again, we try very hard to make this a child-friendly environment, but there's no way to get around this. This is about finding happiness through possessions or pornography. And the promise of happiness that possessions or pornography bring to so many people in this room who are hooked on one or both of them. But they don't actually satisfy you, do they? So that's his experiment. To try to find pleasure with entertainment in the man cave. He experimented with accomplishment in the dream home and he examined possessions and pornography in his fantasy life. How has his experiment worked out for him? Well, he tells us he has very unhappy results. He actually tells us that he became the greatest king like ever. He was very popular. And then he makes this incredibly honest statement in verse 10. Look at that with me. He says, Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Or how we translate it for the kids. Basically, I got whatever I wanted. No holding back. Honestly, all that work to have that life made me happy for a little while. It worked. For a bit, he found some happiness. Since he was honest, let's be honest too. There is something very attractive about this lifestyle he talks about, isn't it? Especially that description of getting whatever he desired. Think of how many times the words, if only, flitter across your mind in a given day. See, he has the life we imagine most celebrities have. The life that we assume deep down would make us happy. He indulged. He had the means and he admits it worked. He was happy but he confesses it was not a deep down satisfying joy. He had to keep working to keep that lifestyle up. He had to do it more and more to get that little bit of happiness it gave him. That little bit of pleasure out of it. It's really the same thing you and I do when we struggle against a habitual sin or an addiction Here's what I mean. In 1 Kings chapter 4, you don't have to turn there, you just believe me. It gives us a description of King Solomon of the supplies for one day in his house. And scholars across the spectrum, they add up all these weird words and, and measurements and they come up with the estimate that it's enough to supply fifteen to 20,000 people a day. Those are some epic parties, right? But I promise you it didn't start out that way. It kept getting bigger because he has to do something different and more extravagant to avoid the boredom and to get the same payoff of happiness that he got. Doing the same thing he did yesterday doesn't work. You've got to do a little bit more, right? But eventually he did get bored with the man cave parties. And so he spent 14 years building a mansion. 
After that, he still felt empty, so he went in for the lifestyle of wealth and women. He lacked for no fantasy. Those of you struggling against habitual sin, you, you understand this progress, this, this, trans, this, this transition from something little to something big, don't you? Because there's that ever-increasing desire for an ever-decreasing pleasure, isn't there, in our sins and our addictions? The pleasures of this world overpromise and underdeliver, and it causes us to go deeper and deeper into sin to try to find that same pleasure, doesn't it? In a room this size, many of you find yourself going to darker and darker places on the internet. I know. Places and things that are more perverse than you ever imagined you would look at. But you have to, don't you? Because you're no longer getting the payoff from the more tame things like you used to. And so even against your will, you, you, you keep slipping down to this darkness because you're addicted. Can I just say, as one of your pastors, that if you are dealing with a pornography addiction, there is grace and forgiveness and healing for you in Jesus Christ. You can be set free. Come and see me or come and see John Mark. We will not judge you. We will help you find freedom. You don't have to struggle alone. Don't believe that lie. You can have joy again in Jesus Christ. So back to our text. Solomon, Solomon realized that he could not find lasting joy in this world. There was some pleasure in it, but a lot of work too is what he says. And all that work for that little bit of fleeting happiness, here for a second and then gone, he says, you know what, it wasn't worth it. It was vanity. It was frustrating. It was empty. So after facing the unhappy results from his happy experiment, he decides to face happiness itself. Verse 11 tells us that he stopped to face the reality of what he was doing, to, to face the reality of his experiment, to consider it. He said, you know, I found happiness. I was not always miserable, but life was still frustrating. I wasn't satisfied. By the way, since we're going through this together, and I hope you're talking about these things in your small groups, I know you have family members, you know, not everybody stops and considers like verse 11 says he did. Few actually face the reality and ask themselves, am I happy? That's why the frustration of life here that Ecclesiastes talks about may not resonate with people you love. It may not necessarily resonate with you if you're not actually facing the fact and asking, am I happy? What's the point? See, if you have given your heart to seeking the man cave of entertainment or the dream home of accomplishment or the fantasy life of possessions and sensuality, and you never stop working at that lifestyle to really think about it, you're not going to sense the frustration. You're too busy maintaining the treadmill pace. So if there's someone in your life you care about who doesn't know Christ, who you can say, you know, they seem pretty happy actually, but I know deep down they can't be, Pray that they would start to think about bigger issues. That maybe they would start to feel a little discontentment. That maybe they might face and ask the question, am I happy? The Lord will work with that. But for those of us who do feel the frustration of life, for those of us who do feel, you know, I work so hard, what ultimately is the point? I mean, really, what's it all about? 
Solomon does have an answer for us. And to find that answer, I want us to all look at the kids' translation of verse 11. So here's how he said it for the kids. When I really thought about everything I had done, how much work that lifestyle took, it totally wasn't worth it. It was empty and like trying to catch the wind in my hands. I want to bring this down to our world to see. Because yes, this ancient wisdom book speaks to us. There is truth here in Ecclesiastes, but sometimes it helps to have something from our time and our culture. So I want to give you a specific example. In 2005, Tom Brady, the pastor, a pastor, well, the quarterback of the New England Patriots, um, had just won his third Super Bowl. He was 30 years old, had a $60 million contract, and as an unmarried man was on three of the world's major magazines as the most eligible bachelor in the world. He was it, man. He had the life we all fantasize about. He's got it. He's there. He is at the apex. He's young. He's rich. He's successful. He's attractive and he's desired. During that time, he gave an interview to 60 Minutes. And he didn't know it, but he pretty much follows the script of Ecclesiastes 2. I want to I I I share with you just a small excerpt from his interview. Here's what he said. He was asked. He answered, Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, Hey man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me? I think, God, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this isn't, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. So the interviewer asked, well, what's the answer? I wish I knew. I wish I knew, says Brady. Whoa. Solomon says it thousands of years ago. Tom Brady says it ten years ago. You could find someone saying it today. Because we are wired for ultimate happiness. We constantly seek out deep and abiding happiness. We are thirsty for pleasure, a deep joy in our hearts. And that thirst, that hunger is a clue that we were made to find pleasure. The Christian story is clear, and I'm so sorry for the moralistic, Christianized people who have said the otherwise. God is not a killjoy. God wants us to have more pleasure than we know how to handle, more than this life can offer. He invented pleasure. He invented happiness, and He wants you to have it. I mean, just think of Eden. I mean, seriously, don't read it as, this is the God's holy scripture. Just think about it as a person. We've got what? We've got two naked people in a garden of complete freedom, everything they could eat, and God says, go have fun. See, and the sons of Adam, the children of humanity, have lost that. But we seek it so much. We hunger for real happiness. And Jesus Christ comes along, and what does He say? He says, I want to bring you abundant life of unimaginable joy. And we don't believe it. So I want to challenge you with this as we close. Have you ever heard of the problem of pain? Most of us have, right? You know, it's the very popular objection to Christianity in general or, or God's, you know, it's, it's the idea of why do bad things happen if God is so good, right? Everybody's heard that? The actual more pervasive problem, but it's not as popular because that answer is harder, is the problem of pleasure. Not just why do good things happen, 
But it's deeper than that. It's why do we want good things to happen? Again, let's go back to our expert, C.S. Lewis. Here's how he frames the problem of pleasure. He says, Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove the universe is a fraud. Earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only arouse it to suggest the real thing. See, here's the problem of pleasure. Why do we have cross-cultural, pan-historic, multi-ethnic, which means it's not a stereotype, it's an archetype of humanity. Why is there this universal desire to be happy? If the secularist worldview is correct, if all we are is through a process of Darwinian evolution, vessels for our DNA to be taken to the next stage, think of all the caloric resources we burn trying to be happy that make no evolutionary sense. There's no answer to the problem of pleasure in a secular worldview. Why are we so much want to be happy? But... Could it be that the Bible is true and that we are creatures made by a glorious creator who says, go have fun, and we messed it up, and so he's working about bringing back that world for us, and deep down we still want that world. We remember deep in our hearts what it was like to be free and happy. I'm so grateful that in the providence of God, because we plan these sermons out months in advance, I'm so grateful that it falls on this Sunday, a communion Sunday, because I can tell you with full assurance that the wine he mentions in verse 3 that did not fulfill him, this wine will fulfill you. This wine points to the blood of the Savior who said, I have come to give you abundant life. I have come to, that your joy may be full. He came and He shed His blood to be the penalty for our sin so that we, sinners all, could stand before a holy God, be reunited to Him, adopted into His family, clean and forgiven in Jesus Christ, and we can hear our Creator God say over us these beautiful words from Psalm 16.1. Imagine the Creator saying this to you. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's the promise for God's people that God says, come into my family and I will give you unspeakable joy and pleasure. Do you want that? Oh, you know you do. Hear the message of the gospel that Jesus Christ, by His sacrifice for you, wants to give you the joy and pleasure of God's presence. He died to give that to you as a gift. You don't have to perform for it. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to try to be the best now person you can be. None of that junk. You just simply place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. He forgives you. He adopts you. And He takes you to God. And He will make you happy. It sounds so superficial when I say it that way, but we all want that so bad, don't we? Embrace that. If you're a long-time church attender, if you're a long-time Christian, if you're here for the first time, it doesn't matter. Jesus Christ wants you to be happy, and if you place your faith and trust in Him today, you can be happy. It's that simple. You can be satisfied, and you can find joy and pleasures in Him.
No, do it today. Don't wait. Let's pray together. Oh, gracious God and Heavenly Father, oh Lord, we do come and we do confess that we are so thirsty for joy, so thirsty for happiness. We need You, Father. Lord, please forgive us for seeking to slake our thirst through entertainments or through sensuality or through possessions and accomplishment. Lord, would You help us to take those desires and turn them to You to seek You and believe that You can be found. Now, Holy Spirit, would You even now do the work of salvation that as Jesus Christ has been lifted up, would You draw all people to Yourself? And we ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please stand? Let's respond to God's Word by singing together. Oh, no.